Some rounds, birdies can be hard to come by. Fortunately for us all, some don't require that solid iron game to be found. Welcome to Bird Watchers, an expression of our eternal devotion to all things bird. Trade the rangefinder for a pair of binocs and keep an eye out for this week's featured bird. is so good you hit it on the head that was one out of ten i think that was spot on nah man that's like eight or nine it's pretty good i think uh i think one of the one of the more fascinating things we were just discussing uh so it wasn't until this century that people who are in the business of classifying birds and putting them in the right family in the order discovered that pelicans are more closely related to herons and ibis and the shoebill stork, uh, they're more closely related to those birds than they are to other seafaring birds like gulls and terns that we might associate them with. And as you're sitting here making this call, I realize like, wow, Luke kind of sounds like a heron. So I guess it makes sense. These birds, although they might look a lot alike and behave very differently, they kind of sound alike. Yeah. Well, spoiler, that's uh, this week's bird, the pelican, the brown pelican. The brown pelican. One of our uh, two North American species. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about with the pelican, but first, Luke, please. Uh, I know you've been playing more golf lately than you have in recent weeks and months. So tell me about it. Yeah, and happy 2021, everyone. Uh, we're in the new year. couple rounds as of late that I played. I got out to Zebulon Country Club, which is a really cool 18-hole course near us in Raleigh, about 40 minutes east. Got out there with my homie Josh. We had a little match going, and on hole six, it's a par five, kind of straight away uphill, and I absolutely, absolutely pumped this one wood persimmon ping driver straight down the middle, like you could not have placed it anymore in the center of the fairway. And I get up to it, just kind of like licking my chops, pull a five iron, had about two oh five away, and I just cold shanked it, <laughs> shanked it, you know, forward and right. And luckily, a tree saved me and kept it in. And I had this really weird next shot into the green where I had to go punch low through trees, but the ball was sitting in like a pile of leaves. So I also didn't know what the impact was going to be like and took a pitching wedge and just kept it in the back of my stance and tried to hit this low punch shot. Lo and behold, it hit the ball first, nice crisp Below, ball hit 10 feet from the pin and stuck on a dime and made the putt for birdie. So it was like one of the more weird birdies I've ever made in my life with a hole that had a, a lot of ups and downs. Straight S word turned into a four. Man, yeah, those are always good. I, I, I always like to say when I'm in the trees, it's like, oh, this is, I know how to hit this low shot. It's the only shot I can consistently hit. As long as I have to keep it low, then I'll probably be okay. Was that the only bird? Yeah. So my friend Clark was in town not too long ago and, and gave me some new hickories to mess around with. And first swing with this uh, niblick landed three feet from the cup and just stayed right there. What is that an equivalent to? Is that like a wedge? Uh, a little bit more than a wedge. Somewhere between like, like an eight to pitching wedge okay. range. So yeah. we'll call it a nine iron. Yeah. 
sick. I still, it still amazes me watching you swing those things, how like, well, you hit them. I mean, you made a couple birdies, obviously. How long have you been doing that? How long have you played with hickories? Uh, since August. Okay. So. You feel like you've kind of gotten gotten them down pat yet? Uh, so all, so the hickory, the cool thing about playing with hickories is each club and shaft has its own personality. Like no two shafts are uniform. Whereas like if you had a, your, you know, your set of modern irons where it's the same shafts and you kind of know what to expect and you can technically speaking, get them tipped out how you want them, right. the weight you want, that sort of thing. Back in the day, like Bobby Jones would go through thousands of shafts to just find the one that he liked. And um, it really comes down to like the age of the tree and where the tree is grown and all sorts of things that go into how the hickory shaft performs. So each club really, you're like starting over, whereas you can say like, oh, Niblix like a nine iron, but no two Niblix are going to be the same. And even if you have like the lofts identical and try to have the shafts identical in swing weight and that sort of thing. They still won't be. Yeah. Sometimes you're going to have a shaft that just wants to send it low every time or one that'll be like a little bit left or right bias. And it's fun to get out there and field test them. And Clark has really opened my eyes to that side of golf and being a golf professional, you know, I'm a PGA member, PGA professional. I went to school for it. The golf professional quote unquote back in the day was responsible for making golf balls, making golf clubs, repairing golf clubs, and literally would make these clubs by hand with hickory shafts. And there's a lot more to, to that history of the golf club, even before hickory um, clubs that have been doing some research in and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. It's uh man, it's one of those challenges that I'm sure I'll have to take on one of these days. You make it look fun. Well, we got some laying around the shop here. So if you're in or around Raleigh and ever want to try them out, Jeb, we'll get you hooked up with some, uh, feel free to swing on by and we'll, we'll definitely give a loaner set. And if you see me playing the ladies tees out of the line, you'll know why that is <laughs> that day. I hit it short enough with the modern technology I do have. <laughs> uh, one more golf tale, so to speak, or something that, uh, I've experienced recently with, you know, golf in mind ties in perfect with this episode. So this would be great to tee it off into the segue into the Brown Pelican. Uh, I took a trip out to Ocracoke, North Carolina. It's in the Outer Banks. I've been going there my whole life. My grandparents started going back there back in the 70s and built a little shack on the sound. Um, and Ocracoke, home to National Protected Seashore, tons of birds, wildlife, um, great nature in general, and just a massive beach where you can just go. And uh, Matt and I went and we took his forerunner out there and just set up golf holes and played a bunch of golf out there on the, on the coast and saw tons of birds, saw tons of pelicans. And that's kind of what prompted the interest in learning more about the brown pelican today with you. Awesome. So I imagine you saw a ton of them. It's the time of year where yeah. we should expect to see them. Uh, when they're flying past on the coast, we saw some dolphins. As the dolphins are like jumping and swimming by, pelicans are also kind of like scooting across the surf. And it looks like they are really like riding the waves. It's an, really cool. An entire squadron. That's right. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the skeins of geese, uh, flocks. We all know some of these collective terms. And pelicans, one of the more, they actually have a lot of different, a uh, pod is probably the most commonly used, but a squadron of pelicans, which to me is just, yeah, it just evokes, you know, Flight of the Valkyries type music. And you can imagine 
planet earth style documentary and a, a whole squadron coming in and attacking this school of fish let's uh let's jump into it luke you segued as well into so this week's featured bird as we've mentioned which is the official bird of saint petersburg florida another city i've never been to the brown pelican One of two species of pelican, there are eight in total, that are native to North America, the other being the much larger white pelican. Brown pelicans, although they're huge, uh, wingspans roughly between five and six feet, and they can grow as heavy as 11 pounds, um, are actually the smallest species of pelican in the world. They're also one of only two species of pelicans that are known to dive for their food. That I think that's one of the attributes that we attribute to pelicans. Whenever we think of pelicans, we think of 60 feet in the air, dive bombing down, massive bills that fill up with water and they they just scoop up their fish. Uh, their bills can hold as much as, what, three gallons of water at a time while they, they drain it out and let and then they swallow the fish while trying to evade uh, thieving gulls and turns. Yeah, it was when I saw the, the it's called the guller, right? Uh, the, the bill or beak right. area was could hold up to three gallons of water i was like thinking in my head how many golf balls would that be like it's huge <laughs> what well, uh the the uh i've seen challenges where people try to see how many marshmallows they can fit in their mouth <laughs> yeah i think the pelican would take the cake <laughs> one million percent they have uh so the the bill is you know is uh like most birds is constructed it's it's a bone-like material but the gullet is actually just really fleshy loose skin uh which allows it to expand and retract also allows for them to heal very well so as you can imagine, with a bird impacting the water at some 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, you wonder how they don't get hurt. One of the ways is, well, most primarily they have air sacs that cover the whole chest part of the body, which provide basically like an airbag for impact. They also have a tendency, all brown pelicans when they dive, actually rotate as they hit the water to their left, which is to protect their uh, vital organs, their esophagus and throat which is actually lined on the right side of their throat. So they have these measures in which they can protect themselves. And again, with with the fact that their gullet is made of this loose skin, um, and because it can retract and expand so rapidly and, and so frequently, that when they do sustain damage to that skin, it, it actually heals really quickly. And it's really common for uh, wildlife refuge centers and different places to find injured pelicans and... They heal really quickly. It's not a bird that you have to keep in rehabilitation for months and months and months. They, you know, a week and then you can put them back in the wild. So how long have pelicans been around for? Uh, something like 30 to 40 million years is how far we date them back. And again, for a, the longest time, we more closely associated that lineage in the same order as gulls and terns. But actually, as I mentioned, they're more closely related to uh, to ibis and herons, which are also extremely old birds. So these things are, are quite literally prehistoric some of the oldest birds known. The brown pelican, as I mentioned, is one of the smaller species. Their range, they uh, they nest and breed um, in the southern parts of the states, the Gulf of Mexico. You find them on both coasts, east and west, Pacific and Atlantic. They spend Shout their, out to our California homies. They, and they're actually lucky. They have way more white pelicans. They actually have both species. Uh, white pelicans are not nearly as prevalent on the east coast of North America. So you guys get, to get the best of both worlds. They winter in... They, they can roam as far north as Maryland, New York. Um, it's, it's not uncommon, although slightly uncommon, to see birds further north than, say, Maryland or the coast of Oregon. But like many birds, their habitat and their range is beginning to change based on our 
over a hundred years now of studying these birds, they've, uh, well, for one, these birds were once uh, an endangered species and actually a critically endangered species. Uh, like many, and we touched on with the bald eagle more specifically, the use of DDT and other pesticides was extremely detrimental to pelican populations. And as a matter of fact, pelicans were nearly wiped from, ex- from the face of the earth in the 70s. Pelicans were particularly susceptible to the effects of DDT on eggs because, unlike many birds, they actually incubate their eggs using their webbed feet. So they don't sit on the egg, they stand on the egg. (laughs) And males and females take turns with this. Uh, They nest mainly on grounds in uh, isolated islands, island habitats. Uh, They they are uh, communal, so you find large colonies of birds. They don't nest... um, they actually stay in colonies in large groups year-round. They migrate in colonies, um, which is fairly unusual. They'll nest on the ground normally or in low-hanging sh- uh, mangrove trees or other trees, which is also another unusual thing. You won't find many bird species that are kind of uh, opportunist in their nesting. Most birds have a particular type of tree or a particular type of ground that they look for to nest. Uh, you can give a pelican just about anything as long as it's relatively isolated and surrounded by water, and they'll use it to make nests. Males bring the materials in, females build the nest. So there's very much a, a uh, they uh, share the responsibilities, the, the uh, brood raising responsibilities. They usually, uh, one brood of eggs a year, no more, uh, two to four eggs, of which you expect no more than two of the chicks to survive. Chicks are born featherless. They usually don't leave the nest until they're about five weeks old, but it's been noted that Nests that are above ground, as in in these small trees, actually the chicks might wait until 10 weeks before they ever leave. And if you can do a quick Google search uh, at home, if you're listening, if you're driving, uh, obviously don't do that. But check out what baby pelicans look like. They're really cool looking birds. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about prehistoric. They do look like little dinosaurs. They don't even look like birds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Featherless, helpless, yet terrifying at the same time creatures. Which I guess you could say the same about brown pelicans. They're from a distance, they look harmless. I mean, they're big, and some people, a lot of people, have a fear of birds. I'm sure those people think all pelicans look scary, but they're really gregarious, interesting birds. Luke pointed out that a lot of people have noted that pelicans they have individual personalities. In my experience with pheasants uh, and waterfowl, I've found that to be the case as well. So, although I don't think it's like scientific. certainty that that all birds behave in this way i think the more and more i do my own research and the more and more about different species of birds i find the more and more i find that to be the case how on each individual bird it's uniquely itself so just more reason to love pelicans and more reason to want to interact with them although maybe the people beside you on the beach or the fishing pier won't thank you for it uh pelicans have shown more willingness than others to be hand-fed and to uh, form these types of symbiotic relationships if you will with fishermen Pelicans are like the rest of us. They'll go hunt for their food or go search for it. But if you're just going to give it to them, they'll, they'll take it. They'll eat out of your hand. And that's, you know, why you see them hanging around fishing piers, why you see them following trawlers or different fishing boats is they're very opportunistic and... Low-hanging fruit. Yeah, precisely low-hanging fruit. Uh, so touching back on their conservation status um, and their ever-changing range. So as we touched on, they traditionally breed and spend their winter months in the south, migrate up north like a lot of birds, um, although not as far north, and they are more susceptible to, say, winter storms. Um, It's being noted that the food which they eat, which are fish, uh, anchovies, sardines, um, cod, small fish, 
especially on the Pacific coast, these populations of fish are, have become, are almost on the verge of collapse in some places. And as that's happening, traditional places where these birds might nest or spend their in-between breeding and wintering seasons or breeding in summer seasons, they are actually finding new places and branching into new parts of the coast where we haven't really documented them before. And it's creating an issue because these birds, they're branching into new territory. And a lot of these are young birds who are on their first or second migration. And they're looking for more food. They're looking for new sources of food. And they're becoming stranded. They're actually spending too long in these northerly parts of the country and the continent. And it's becoming a more and more common story to hear of these wildlife refuge centers recovering pelicans who are frostbitten or who have gotten caught in these winter storms. And so they're it's like they get to these places and it's like, oh, look at all this food. And then a winter storm comes and like, what do we do now? Where, where, where are we supposed to go? Uh, so so although they, they are listed as not threatened, uh, the future of that of that designation it, it has a lot of uncertainty around it because of there are so many, there seem to be so many factors that are influencing uh, brown pelican populations uh, year on year and their virality. <laughs> um, there, it's being changed, and there are lots of places. Um, as a matter of fact, as recent as 2016, um, places in, in Southern California were noting that that islands that usually would have as many as um, 2,000 breeding pairs, they counted as few as 143 that summer, and no fewer, no more than 16 chicks that had hatched and survived from that, whereas they were used to raising 1,000 on the same island in years past. And so there are these really weird year-on-year fluctuations in where these pelicans are breeding and how many babies they're producing that that cast a lot of doubt on the future of um, of the bird. But uh, on a positive note, there are many places. So we can look back to, was it 2014 when BP had the major oil spill in the Gulf Coast? It might have been longer ago than that. But at any rate, the state of Louisiana... Um, in conjuncture with with lots of different wildlife uh, conservation organizations have devoted the BP settlement money from that oil spill into the uh, the reclamation of and the um, the rebuilding of these barrier islands in the Gulf Coast. One island in particular, I think it's the North Burn Island off the coast of Louisiana, where there um, it's one of the first wildlife refuges established by Teddy Roosevelt. It was one of the harder hit places by this oil spill. The wildlife populations there were really hard hit. And a $75 million restoration project was begun in December to actually add sand and to rebuild these islands, which is the largest uh, brown pelican rookery in America. Efforts like that, and this is this is the third, I think, of three projects that the state has taken on there to rebuild barrier islands. Because it's not just pelicans, it's terns, all sorts of different bird species that are using these places. There are lots of efforts and concerted efforts to help maintain and and keep the conservation success that is the brown pelican going because again uh thanks to the efforts of many to to limit and to ban the use of ddt and these pesticides brown pelicans are one of the the main uh, beneficiaries of that act uh, along with the bald eagles again we want to shout out organizations like the american bird conservancy and the uh, cornell lab of ornithology who are continuing this fight for all of our feather friends so again we would highly encourage you all to to look into how you can contribute to these organizations and how you can continue uh to keep fighting the good fight luke what uh what do we miss on here what uh what else did did you have or want to touch on about the brown pelican uh i think what's cool about them when it comes to how they eat 
as the plunge, right? I saw him doing some research and also like seeing him in person where they are diving from super high heights, like 60 feet. You had mentioned this earlier, the impact is what actually stuns the fish where they're able to scoop them up. Uh, to that point, their meal plan consists of eating about four pounds of fish a day, which seems like a lot. Yeah, especially <laughs> for a bird that only weighs 10 or 11 pounds, which is actually, I mean, that sounds heavy, but it's not. Considering the size of these birds, you know, uh, what is it, like a six-foot wingspan? Um, 11 pounds actually is relatively light, uh, and that's because they um, they have a certain buoy- uh, buoyancy, so they can dive, and they dive deep, and they actually swim. Uh, they, they use their wings and their feet as propellers underwater, so they don't just dive straight down and come back up. They'll actually dive down, the fish are stunned by the impact, and then they swim after these stunned fish and get them before they come up, so it's not just a all in one fluid motion they're they're swimmers as well which is you know there's uh there are all kinds of documentaries that you can go to and you can see this underwater footage of swimming pelicans and it's absolutely nuts they're pretty unique in that regard of how they fish that is why not just among uh uh saltwater birds or saltwater breeding birds but also uh freshwater birds like the kingfisher is an example of a bird we think of they don't even do that that is wild uh and then one other thing that we forgot to mention is how long they live, which is, I think, fascinating. I think it's any time a wild animal lives, has a lifespan over 20 years on average, I think that's uh, worth noting. And the oldest brown pelican ever recorded was actually 43 years old. And the average uh, the average life expectancy of the brown pelicans over 30 years. So they, they live to be to a ripe old age, uh, which is helping maintain their populations now that we've had steadily growing numbers since the 70s. A lot of these birds are are remnants of that legislation and of those acts. So we're still seeing the same birds reap the same benefits today that they were in the eighties when this was passed. That's awesome. I I know you had mentioned that males and females come together with their nest and the males kind of gather, gather what's needed to build the nest and the females help build it. And they both take turns with, uh, standing on the eggs was wondering if they stay dedicated to each other season after season or if they switch mates or how that all works. There's not a lot of evidence um, suggesting otherwise. And anytime you have this type of co-responsibility of nest building and of child rearing in birds, because that is relatively uncommon in terms of usually it's one or the other that takes on the mantle of raising the child. The other one's the one that goes and gets food. We do tend to uh, suspect that that is the case, that they are lifelong partners. But um, there's actually not a lot of of research into that. Um, there's actually not, it, you know, it's surprising. And anytime you hear that, because you, we assume that wildlife biologists have got everything figured out. No, the pelican, that's such a common bird. Surely we know everything there is to know. And we actually don't. We don't even know that much about how or why they migrate other than the fact that if they were too far north, they would obviously need to come back south at some point. But really, when they find a stable population of food and a, and a safe habitat, we don't really know why they would ever migrate from that. We've talked about geese and how they become resident geese and why they, they find an area that is well-suited for them and they just never leave. And that's not the case with pelicans. They, they do migrate and they do leave. We're just now beginning, a matter of fact, I was reading about um, uh, researchers up in Maryland um, that were partnering with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology who actually just began the first studies actually tracking migratory east coast brown pelicans my guess is that uh in the near future we'll have more answers on to their uh how they mate for life or whether they don't or um 
how and why they migrate, where exactly each bird is migrating from and migrating to. We'll hopefully have those answers sometime soon. It sounds like those studies are just getting underway well. Yeah. Well, if you want to check out some brown pelicans, if you're in the state of North Carolina or nearby, I highly suggest you go check out Ocracoke Island. You can also take a really cool trip out to Portsmouth Island from Ocracoke, yes. which is an old abandoned island. The last people that lived there were in the 70s, and now it's a National Park Service run island with the old structures of these people's houses that used to live on the island back in like the 1800s, early 1900s. Tons of old history. If you like pirates, that sort of thing, there's a lot of pirate culture in history. Blackbeard. Blackbeard. Uh, Ocracoke Inlet was Teach's Hole, his, uh, his area of refuge. Now there's over 100 pairs of brown pelicans at the Ocracoke Inlet. They're everywhere, and it's just a beautiful sight to see them in the wild. We'll be, I'm sure, showing some videos and photos I took while on the trip of all the pelicans and other birds that are out there. Highly recommend checking that out, and if you see any, um, definitely let us know if you have any other fun facts on brown pelican and pictures of brown pelicans on golf courses. 100%. They uh, they don't tend to come inland very much, so I think if you've got some pelicans on your golf course, you're either right on the coast or you've got an unusual spot. So if you, you know any courses where pelicans frequent, let us know. Well, Jeb, thank you once again for opening all of our eyes to the beauty of birds and in particular on this week's episode, the brown pelican. It was fun as always, Luke. So until next time. Thank <laughs> you.